Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I got to tell you the truth. I never had sex with Armand DeSante either. (laughs) (laughs) Whole bunch of virgins here at this podcast (laughs) because in this season of Awesome Movie Year, we've been talking about the films of 1980, and we are here now at my pick, which is the teen comedy Little Darlings featuring a whole bunch of teen virgins trying to lose their virginities uh, in a competition. So... Right. There's only two virgins trying to lose their virginities in the competition. That's true. There are a lot of virgins overall, but only two of them are in the competition. That is correct. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So is a movie that has uh, what sounds like a very wacky 80s teen comedy premise. Uh, it's set at an all-girls summer camp, and the two main characters, played by Christy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill, end up in this bet where they are competing to see who will be the first to lose their virginity. And it does have some wacky. 80s summer camp comedy stuff. But from my perspective, at least, and the reason that I picked this film is I think this is a really sensitive, well-acted character drama. I mean, it's a comedy, but it has a lot of serious moments uh, about coming of age, uh, about what uh, girls and teenagers in general deal with peer pressure and uh, approaching having sex. And uh, I just think this movie is fantastic and super underrated. So I feel like uh, I have a recent history of saying things like this, and then Jason's response is, what is wrong with you? But uh, hopefully (laughs) I I shared something that people liked on this episode. I still wonder what's wrong with you, but not not necessarily with your pick this time. All right. Good to hear. (laughs) Good to hear. Because I, I, I feel like this movie does have sort of a cult following. Now, uh, a couple years ago, I wrote an article about it as a sort of an underrated gem, and I got some good responses. And it was a movie that was long unavailable. And now that it is uh, available to stream, I feel like more people are discovering it. It was a moderate success when it was first released. It grossed $34.3 million worldwide on its budget of $5.3 million. And I think it was a high profile release. Uh, Christy McNichol at the time was a massive star on the TV show Family, which is one of these shows that apparently was like a huge, huge hit and has been completely forgotten as far as I can tell. But uh, prior to this film, Christy McNichol had won two Emmys, uh, both for Family, and Tatum O'Neill had won an Oscar for Paper Moon. They were both really, really big teen stars teaming up in this film. Tatum O'Neill was the youngest person to ever win an Oscar at that point in Christy McNichol. Uh, was the youngest person to ever win two Emmys. Uh, she was had two by the time she was 17 there, Josh. So I want to just dispute one thing. I think in 1980, if you made a movie for 5.3, uh, like a movie like this, and you got 30 and changed back, that's a big hit. Okay, yeah. So it was a, it was a pretty big hit. And, and certainly it was a highly anticipated film. And I think maybe after being a hit and I know when I again, when I wrote about it, I feel like people of a certain age, maybe a little older than us, uh, talked about having seen it a lot on TV on like early HBO. And stuff I remember like that. it. I remember it from the, the pay cable channels back in the day. Right. But I think it then sort of disappeared for a bit and is, is slowly making its way back. But uh, although it did well at the box office, critics did not like it. I tried really hard to find a positive review of this movie, and it's, I'm sure it exists somewhere. But with uh, the reviews that uh, are accessible online that I was able to find, there was really very, very little in the way of anything positive. Um, Siskel and Ebert gave it two thumbs down, although they uh, they did give it credit for some of the the seriousness that I was talking about and the sensitivity, uh, especially Roger Ebert more so, I think, than Gene Siskel. But they felt that that didn't fit well together with the the summer camp antics, and they didn't care for any of those at all. Um, So Ebert, in his, you know, maybe a little bit mixed review, uh, he said, the movie begins with inexperienced teenagers who have an uninformed, frivolous attitude towards sex. And it moves rather awkwardly through would-be comic scenes in which Tatum O'Neill and Christy McNichol attempt to seduce their target males and win the bet. 
but the scenes in which they actually confront the realities of sex are handled so thoughtfully and tastefully that they almost seem to belong to another movie. That's possibly because Little Darlings really wants to be two movies at once. A fairly serious film about teenagers and sex, but also a box office winner like National Lampoon's Animal House or Meatballs. That's why we get awkwardly forced comedy like the food fight scene. And um, I mean, I think he's not wrong that it's trying to do both of those things. I just think it it succeeds. And, and he obviously doesn't agree. Yeah, I like the food fight scene. It was like, hey, look at the camaraderie we all share. And that's what right. you kind of want from these summer camp movies. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to get some of the little fun antics in order to build up the characters and their friendship and their camaraderie, like you're saying, before you get serious. I went to a camp once uh, and uh, there was a chef, uh, a large African-American woman named Peggy. And if you told her her food was bad that day, she would pick you up and stuff you in a garbage can. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you would think that that would be a lesson that would be quickly learned by everyone. (laughs) But but also, like, even if the food is bad, I guess they're kids, so they don't have filters. But like, why would you just tell, like, say to some poor underpaid summer camp cook, your food sucks? I, I don't think, I mean, maybe it was as simple as like, hey, the potatoes were a little under or this needed more yeah. salt. But anything yeah. you said would re, re, uh, re, you know, would end up with you. Uh, result was the word I was looking for there, guys. <laughs> Two yeah. syllables. Uh-huh. I got the first one in a garbage can. So d- did you get stuffed in the garbage can? Nah, nah. I, I you know, I complained about my food professionally. I was going to say, this is this is the launch of Jason's career as yeah. a food writer and an, and an expert back there in summer camp. So Ebert, I think, was probably the nicest to this film, although even the other negative reviews especially did single out Christy McNichol for her strong performance. Gary Arnold in The Washington Post said, Little Darlings, an unsavory little doodle about sex-obsessed teeny boppers, unfolds at a summer retreat for girls called Camp Little Wolf. Somewhere across a lake, the boys are stationed at Camp Tomahawk. Given the maddening prurience of the material, it would be more appropriate if everyone was billeted at Camp One Track Mind. One is left with the unpleasant impression that Little Darlings was animated by an idle longing to exploit its popular teenage co-stars for cheap thrills. The depictions are discreet, but the context is obstinately smutty. And I completely disagree. I feel like this movie is not exploitation at all. In fact, maybe even what could have been to its detriment because audiences would have expected something raunchier and, you know, more nudity or more uh, smuttiness, as he describes it. Yeah, more uh, because there was no nudity. Right, right. uh, um, So it's interesting that he's like one track minds. Like, did he want like, like a few of the girls to be like, you guys, stop worrying about sex. The color war is coming up. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like he did. He spends quite a lot of that review seemingly offended at the idea of this movie that would show these teenage girls being fixated on sex, especially starring, you know, Christy McNichol and Tatum O'Neill, these these big popular teenage actresses like, you know, they, they're not allowed to do something like that. I mean, Josh, even today we're dealing with people and not even on a sexual level, but, you know, like uh, people were upset that turning red dealt with menstruation. Right. So Mm -hmm. there's always an audience that can't fathom talking about women, their bodily functions or their uh, desires, shall we say? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and you have to wonder, like, would Gary Arnold have said those same kinds of things if this was a movie about teenage boys that starred two of the big, you know, male teenage stars of the time? And I, I kind of doubt that he would. Yeah. Like, why, why didn't he say that about Up the Creek or <laughs> other teen sex comedies? Yeah, Up the Creek. Can't wait for that episode <laughs> coming up. <laughs> And again, Frank Rich in Time Magazine also uh, had, a, had a lot of nice things to say about Christy McNichol, but overall thought that she was wasted in this film. He said, both girls deserve a better vehicle than Little Darlings. The film has an amusing premise. The two heroines race to see who can lose their virginity first. But director Ronald F. Maxwell, who has done superior TV work, settles for slogging his way through a threadbare script. Writers Kimmy Peck and Daylene Young do not know how to sustain their story beyond the initial exposition, 
and they're not much better at writing characters. The film's tone is confused and predictable. Lame slapstick gags, including the inevitable food fight, sentimental bromides about love, and deadly serious, if inexplicit, sex scenes are thrown together without transitions. Even the heroine's slowly developing friendship is sketchily written. It seems to happen off screen. Yeah, I think honestly, I think those are fair criticisms because I was like, wait, they're rivals, but now they're friends, but nothing really made them friends. I thought that was fair. And I did think, you know, um, it wasn't the most most smoothly edited in a story sense. It just seemed like, OK, here's a scene at a summer camp. Here's a scene at a summer camp. But one didn't necessarily connect to the next. Yeah, I didn't have trouble with those transitions. I, I do think you know, if there's one thing that that I would perhaps criticize, it is that there feels like maybe a beat or two missing in the development of the friendship between the two of them. You know, they're clearly rivals at first. And then in a lot of the movie, they're just kind of separate. They're right. off doing their own things. They're each on their own missions to lose their virginity and they don't interact that much. And then it comes back at the end with them becoming friends. And I think there's a really good scene of not only them, but basically all the other supporting character girls uh, turning on Cinder, the mean girl who has engineered this whole situation. And that I think shows the bond amongst all of them. But yeah, the the end of the very end of the movie where uh, Angel, Christy McNichols character, declares to her mother that Tatum O'Neill's character is her best friend, it's like, ah, I could have used maybe like one more bonding scene between the two of them. So yeah, like you don't really have too many friends if she's your best friend based on what we've seen there. I mean, although that is also true. Part of the point is that neither of these girls really do have very many friends and they're outcasts at the camp. And that's why they agree to go along with this prospect because they both want to be able to fit in and want to make friends. But yeah, that is a bit missing there. I agree. Good, Josh. I'm glad you can take one on the chin for this thing. I can. I'm not saying that these, you know, any of these movies that I pick are perfect, but but I really like this. Uh, I mean, and it's a movie that I have liked more each time I saw it. Um, How many times have you seen it? This was the third time I've seen it. So not like a huge amount or anything, but I'm, you know, someone who doesn't really watch movies more than once. So anything that I've seen more than one time is, you know, probably something that I'm interested in. But I first saw this movie really not knowing much about it or expecting much from it because I was working on an article uh, for a magazine, Jason, that both of us have written for, David Magazine, uh, about summer camp movies and was just looking for fairly well-known summer camp movies to kind of fill out this article and thought that this looked kind of interesting. At the time, it was not available to watch uh, anywhere really. I watched a, a, a bootleg upload of a VHS tape on, on YouTube in order to see this movie the first time and just was really so pleasantly surprised by it because it wasn't what I expected. I thought it's going to be this raunchy teen comedy just maybe with girls instead of guys as the main character. Um, and then I watched it again to write that article a couple years ago and again this time. And I just feel like this movie is so like the one thing I really disagree with what what Frank Rich is saying there is is about the writing of the characters. I feel like all the characters are really really well drawn, including a lot of these small parts. Just the the other girls in the cabin, um, they feel like real people at this summer camp, even though they're all kind of based in in little single personality traits. The uh, you know the kind of hippie girl played by Cynthia Nixon and the the nerdy one who's always reading and things like that. But they they don't feel like they're just reduced to those. So. Uh, to me, I just, I find this movie really rewarding and especially because of the sort of genre that it's in and the time period that it's from that you wouldn't expect it to be like that at all. Yeah. Okay. As a fan of those types of movies, I wouldn't have minded a little more uh, levity to this thing, but that's okay. You know. Right. Yeah. So had you had not seen this before. No, I knew I, you know, I know the movie and I, um, it's weird that it's been unavailable for so long, but I had never seen it. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the unavailability had to do with the music rights primarily, I believe. And there's some some pop songs that for whatever reason, whether it was budget or something, they didn't fully lock down, you know, home video rights and things like that. And even now, Jason, we were talking about this, uh, you know, before recording that the version that you can rent now on various streaming services may not have all of the original songs in it. We're not it, entirely sure. It feels like a mishmash to me, but I yeah. don't know. Yeah, no, I think so, too, because there's some songs in it like uh, Blondie's uh, One Way or Another and there's a, uh, the Bellamy Brothers song at the end. 
that are pretty well known that I think must be original, but at least on like Wikipedia, it mentions some of the music and it mentions the cars. And I'm pretty sure that car song is not in the Virgin version that you can rent right now. You said Virgin. <laughs> I did. Virgins are on my mind with this film. So Dave, had you ever seen this one? No, I hadn't. Uh, there's not a lot of summer camp movies, even though I went to a summer camp, not too unlike this for like I feel six like you're years. like the ideal candidate for a summer camp. Like, yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. I, I, I love just how uh, authentic it all feels. Uh, you know, to me, since I haven't seen a lot of summer camp movies, Wet Hot American Summer is like the gold standard. So this is, uh, you know, it's a good real one. But Wet Hot is a gold standard because it really takes that genre and does such a good send up of it. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, sort of surprised because, Dave, I know you're such a Wet Hot American Summer fan. I would assume that you would have uh, familiarized yourself with this genre more. I know. And I was I was surprised watching this, how much feels like ripped right out of this. Like it felt like there's entire scenes that they're parodying. Oh, well, from Wet Hot American Summer. Probably yeah, they yeah. Are. yeah. Yeah, that is quite yeah. possible, even though this may be, you know, when Wet Hot came out, this was probably a bit obscure, but um, yeah. I'm sure they had seen it when they're, you know, writing that film. What was the name of your summer camp, Dave? Camp Akiba. Was it a Jewish camp? Oh, uh, yep. All Jewish. And uh, it was it was right down the road from where uh, they filmed Wet Hot. Oh, yeah. I had uh, I was at Camp Pinebrook. That's a good nice. camp name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Josh. Guys, uh, I never went to sleepaway camp. I didn't go to sleepaway either. I, oh, no, okay. I did at that one that I told you about with the lady who stuffed you in the garbage can. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So, no, I went to I went to a day camp called Cali Camp. But it was I feel like day camp and sleepaway camp are very different kinds of experiences. Well, so. Mm, yeah. yeah, I mean, well, yes and no. So like, because I've done both like the the Camp Pinebrook was a day camp, but it was like the very quintessential summer camp of like sports and hikes and, you know, talent show and stuff like that. And then I think what you miss is like that kind of bonding, you know, and campfire stuff. But I don't really need that. Yeah, I mean, I I, I had all those activities, too, at day camp, but I definitely feel like that that sort of really serious bonding and having it be like your family um, is something that you don't, I mean, I went home every day, obviously. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't quite the same. I, I made friends, but um, not, I feel like not on that same kind of level that you see in, in movies about sleepaway camps. So D Dave, what was your big focus at Camp Akiba? Did, was it losing your virginity? <laughs> no, not at all. It was to playing Armand Game Boy. <laughs> playing Game Boy. Oh. Yeah, playing Game Boy. And I actually lost like 50 pounds one summer because I wouldn't walk up the hill to the mess hall to get food. I just sat in my room and just starved basically because That's I was so horrifying, lazy. Dave. Just that playing video awful games. Story. That's yeah. hilarious. Good old Dave. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, wow. Okay. Hey, Josh, do you think, I mean, they probably are. We're just not in that world anymore. But um, obviously, there was like a whole subgenre of movies about this in the 80s. So, like, you know, summer camps are hugely popular. Do you think that like summer camps and sleepaway camps are still as popular as when we were growing up? I mean, maybe not as popular, but I'm pretty sure they do still exist just because there aren't a lot of movies about them. Um, and they're, mm. you know, they're like identified with the 80s because there were those movies. And I just I reviewed a movie, I don't know, six months ago or something, a small uh, independent film about uh, kids at summer camp. And I feel like it was possibly set in the 80s. And if it wasn't set in the 80s, it definitely was trying to get that vibe going. And it was, you know, they had to save the summer camp. And there was a whole like the boys versus the girls, uh, you know, like a color war kind of thing, Jason, that was going on. And uh, and and Colin Mockery was the head of the camp. Yeah, I got a fun story. I was asked when I had like a good minute uh, as a hot writer to come up with a premise for hot tub time machine too. And we pitched on that. There were four executives and each one got to pick a writing team and Matt Dines picked us. And um, we were told we had the funniest pitch, but they liked a different angle better. The angle they went with was like, Hey, they end up in like spring break in like the nineties or something like that. And your, but, your idea was about a summer camp. Yeah. My idea was they end up back at the same place that they end up in hot tub time machine, but it's summer. And now they're there at summer camp and there's literally every trope that you could play with, like the neighboring camp is, you know, the owner's going to buy it and they're going to lose the spirit. And then, of course, they they convince them like, well, we'll bet you we could beat you in color war. And the winner of the color war gets the camp. And uh, we were told it was the funniest one and we didn't sell it. And then these other guys sold theirs. And then Steve Pink decided to write his version. So none of it went anywhere anyway. And it was so mm. bad. 
the actual hot tub time machine <laughs> yeah, too. Well, I think I liked uh, my summer. I liked our summer camp version. I also yeah. like uh, when I heard we lost to a spring break. I was like, no, that makes sense. But like, I like the idea of like, hey, we have this uh, location. We've seen it in the winter. We've seen like all those like kind of tropes from like winter movies. Like, let's do the summer version of that. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, but one thing I, I, I do like about Little Darlings is that it's not full of every one of those things. It's it's got the food fight and the whole central concept of the, the virginity competition. But it's not just like one cliche after another that you watch it thinking like, oh, God, this is, you know, this is your basic summer camp movie. I feel like there's that good mix. So to bring it back to this movie that we're theoretically talking yeah, about. Yeah, and I and I would argue I like those things in right. summer camp movies. Well, then we'll get into that a bit more when we come back and talk about our general thoughts on Little Darlings. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we are talking about my pick, which is Little Darlings. And uh, so, Jason, as we mentioned, my insecurity over picking movies that you hate. You didn't hate this, though, right? No, I didn't hate it. I don't know. Have I really hated that many that you've picked, Josh? I don't know. Well, I, maybe the most recent one was Smiley Face, which I feel like that entire episode yeah. was just you looking at me like, what is wrong with you? Yeah, I don't like that movie. But I was thinking because, like, you know. There was that one you picked in 1984 with the ladies in the mall. Uh, oh, Night in the Comet. I love that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't love that, but I was like, oh, that's cool. And I see how this fits. Look, we're all fans of like the coming of age story. And we all like strong female protagonists in our story. We've talked about like never going back and stuff like that. Fort Tilden is, uh, I guess, uh, they're in their 20s. But I love, you know, we love good movies like that. And um, so I totally could see why Josh, you like went for this, why you gravitated for it. Some of it, like I said, didn't work for me where it was like, here's how the characters are now interacting where it's like, Hey, you know, like that rivalry wasn't much of a rivalry at all, you know? And like you said, it's a rivalry at, for one scene or two scenes. And now we're apart for eight, eight out of 10 scenes in the movie. And now we're having a food fight and it's not mean, it's all love. And now we talk about who lost the virginity and who didn't. And now we're best friends. So like there were parts I didn't like, but again, it's a breezy 94 minute movie. I got no, I got no qualms with this one, Josh. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear it. So, and I think that aspect is one thing that I liked is that they don't really have a rivalry. They have one moment on the bus to camp where they kind of, clash with each other just over who's sitting where or whatever. And it's minor. And then the Cinder character, who again is sort of this queen bee or wants to be the queen bee. She's the one who sets herself up as the most mature. She's always wearing makeup and she claims to be engaged to her boyfriend and very sexually experienced. And she appeared in a shampoo commercial and she's clearly wants to be the girl that everyone else like looks up to slash fears. And so she's the one who creates this rivalry, essentially. You know, she engenders this as a way for herself to be like in charge of everyone and run this competition. And so I did like that, that it, it, it wasn't about these two girls actually hating each other. And which is why I didn't necessarily mind that they didn't have a lot of big scenes of like resolving that because they didn't have some sort of huge antagonism. And I think it's also about that they both, they, they kind of, almost reluctantly agree to this bet at the beginning. And then they just get swept up in it because all the other girls in the camp are really into it. And they're wearing their shirts with the angel and Ferris and different names on them. And they're constantly asking, you know, how are things going and who is your, you know, target or whatever. And so they almost have no choice but to follow through with this, even though they're clearly both very ambivalent about it. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned the supporting characters. Uh, Josh, my favorite was chubby yeah it is unfortunate that that's the name <laughs> that they give that character in the credits and, and it's doubly unfortunate because it's not like that character just goes through the whole movie with people talking about how she's chubby in fact i they don't never mention any it, right any yeah. mention of that whatsoever so it's weird i mean the 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 trait that they keep mentioning about her is more that she's kind of she's short or small and everyone thinks she's a littler kid than she really is or that she's she's a kid who wants to be a grown-up type right she wants to be with the older girls so right but she gets to be so i assume it's authorized in some way but yeah she doesn't want to go uh be in the cabin with the 10 year olds who are telling bedtime stories because they're so immature 
Did you guys have any weird nicknames in camp? <laughs> I, I don't oh. think I did. Yeah, I, did, I don't think I did either. No. I, I had a friend in, in school who we called Mud. I don't even know why that was. But when I was introduced to him, it was like, this is Mud. Oh, I re- <laughs> that's funny. Um, I remember this. And now I just like rang the bell. We had a kid at Camp Pinebrook. And it was not a nickname, his last name. His name, his name was Sean Tushyham. Which is a horrible name to get grow up with, and yeah. like, yeah, uh, but hilarious looking back. Yeah, I'm sure That's he doesn't name. feel that way. <laughs> let's let's get Sean Tushyham on the podcast and ask how traumatized he was by everything in his childhood. I mean, like, if it was like you know, as a kid, you're going to make fun of Tushy or Ham, but like to put them together, that's really. A double whammy, tushy ham. That is that is <laughs> su- super unfortunate. So, yeah. um, of course, Angel in this movie, you know, her name is ironic. I guess she keeps saying, especially when she introduces She's from herself. The streets. She is from the streets, which it did make me wonder, like, how does she afford to this, go to this summer camp? Because, you know, they make a big deal about how they have she and her mother have this like rundown car and she lives in. I mean, not like a housing project, maybe, but certainly not a fancy uh, or even like middle class kind of house, but she can go to summer camp for the whole summer. So I, I don't know about that. Christy McNichols good, man. And, um, you know, obviously was a very successful actor and um, it's fun watching her at this stage of her career when she probably was at the uh, zenith of her, her fame, right? And same with Tatum O'Neill, really. Yeah, both of them. I, I, I mean, Christy McNichol is so good in this movie. And I think... She elevates the material if you think maybe the writing isn't always at a high level, especially in those emotional scenes between her and Randy, played by Matt Dillon, the the camper from the from the boys camp that she decides she's going to lose her virginity with. That's the stuff that like Roger Ebert is talking about, where it's so sensitively handled about this girl and her conflicting feelings about sex and whether she wants to do it and how she feels about it afterwards. And you believe every moment of that because Christy McNichol is so good. In this movie. And I remember after having seen this, um, I think maybe the second time when I wrote the article and just thinking about how good she was and, oh, I'd love to see more Christy McNichol movies. And there's very little where the movie or even her performance seems to have a reputation of being particularly good. Two Moon Junction? Yeah, the erotic (laughs) thriller where starring Sherilyn Fenn that she's not even the main character. Uh, I mean, maybe we'll talk more in the legacy, but she did make another movie right after this with Ronald Maxwell, who's this director uh, called The Night the Lights Went Out in Georgia, which is also seemingly unavailable, but doesn't sound like it's particularly good. Which is shocking because it's based on a Vicki Lawrence song. So yeah, exactly. If you're going to make a movie, make it based on a Vicki Lawrence song. (laughs) And a weird, there was like a, there's like a famous monologue related to that from Designing Women, I think, which was recently uh, talked about. In uh, Better Nate Than Ever, the Disney oh. Plus original film, <laughs> he gives a whole monologue. Not related to this at all. But uh, I mean, maybe Family. I, I'm not sure if Family, the TV series that she won Emmys for, is any good or is available to watch anywhere. But it sounds like that was maybe the, the you know, best example of her skills as an actor. But yeah, both of them. I think Tatum O'Neill is good here, too. She doesn't get as much of a range to, to work with. Um, I mean, uh, Ferris, her character, has some moments of sadness. She finds out her parents are getting divorced. And the, the scene between her and Gary Armand Asante, when she is really trying to put the moves on him and he's just sort of bemused by all of it, you can you can feel her like desperation. And it's yeah. definitely a tough scene to watch but, at times. Well, two things about that. One, yeah, that's a, she's a bit over the top, but also she's playing a girl who's like out of her, uh, you know, emotional maturity in that scene. Oh yeah, no, I agree. I'm saying that that's what's good about it, that you can tell that the character is trying really hard and she really puts that forth. Yeah. Christy McNichol was the People's Choice Award for favorite young motion picture actress in like 81. So it was like right around this and only when I laughed, which was based on a Neil Simon play. Uh, Let's talk about Armand Asante, who's an interesting actor. He's, He's good in this. Like you're laughing, but I think he does a good job here. Yeah, I know. He's good in this. I think we just uh, I mean, maybe that's just me, but I, I think of him in his, you know, much later years when he's one of those actors who has looked like an old man for like 30 years um, and just plays, you know, mobsters and stuff like that. Right. So uh, this was a certainly a surprising role for me to see him as this hunky, sensitive teacher guy. Um, but he is good. And I think that's a tough balance 
with that character. And certainly there are aspects of that storyline that would not fly in a movie today. But I think given how uh, problematic it could have been, that it's handled really well. I mean, they acknowledge that he's, you know, some guy in his 20s. And if a teenage girl was coming on to him, he probably would be into that, even though he knows he's not supposed to be into it. But he stops it before it goes past a point that would be inappropriate, even though it does go past a point that sort of now we would probably think was inappropriate. Dave? (laughs) Jason, you don't want to weigh in on that at all? Agreed. <laughs> I wanted to talk about Matt Dillon when we mentioned Wet okay. Hot American Summer. Dave, did you not have flashbacks to Paul Rudd in uh, Wet Hot? That's of that course. type of character with the cigarettes uh, wrapped up in the yeah. sleeve, and yeah, yeah. And, and I'm a Matt. So I'm a big Matt Dillon fan. I honestly think he's underrated. I was looking. He's got some projects coming up, but I feel like you know when we look at like you know McConaughey and Nicholas Cage, these guys having renaissances, like. Matt Dillon, like, you know, he could totally be the next one. He's so talented. But I like, um, you know, I told you guys I watched The Outsiders not too long ago. I really like him in the brooding early 80s where he's like, oh, what do you want from me, man? You know, he's like a young Brando. I don't even care about you. You know, I'm just a guy. <laughs> that's that's good. Yeah. And he's he's very good at that. And 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 I like that, too, though, that character, you can tell that a lot of that is is sort of his own like affectation that he right, has moments yeah. where he also drops that facade and has the sensitivity and that he's probably just as nervous in his own way about having sex with Angel even though he's not a virgin or at least he says he's not and I think we're meant to believe that he's not um and when she is vulnerable and starts crying he kind of drops that the macho bluster and is trying to relate to her and help her and but yet at the same time he's still a horny teenage guy and so he's e- easily able to move on if uh if cinder is coming on to him and tells him about the bet and he's like ah oh, yeah screw her so i like the balance well wait a things. second i gotta give him you know and look to from an emotional standpoint if someone told you hey the only reason this person was interested with sure. you was because of a bet but i'm interested in you because of you you would of course, you would be hurt and want to move on. So right. he didn't do anything wrong there. You know? No, no, he didn't do anything wrong. And of course, being lied to about that being a bet is that's what's wrong. Um, but I think my point there is that it doesn't try to pretend that he's not a horny teenage boy and yeah. wants to have sex with hot girls. At one point, uh, Angel says, like, don't you find me attractive or something? And he's like, all girls are attractive. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's I not just, picky. I just came to summer camp to ride bikes with my buddies. And now you got me all mixed up inside. <laughs> yeah, and he's not even good. There's a great, the great scene too, where Angel and one of the other girls are like kind of spying on him as she's she's scoping him out to see if he's going to be her choice. And he's riding the dirt bikes, and he's bad at it. He falls off. Everyone else is doing well, and his has he like takes his helmet off in frustration, and he's not the brightest. He's a dr- he's a dreamboat, Josh. Come he on, is a man. dreamboat. There's yeah. a lot of posturing on both sides of the camp. Exactly. He's got yeah. great hair too. His hair in this movie is just like glorious. Yep. And and give Matt Dillon credit, right? You know, he was kind of like that. You know, look, that quintessential teen hunk who could have played that role over and over again. And he he really, you know, as an actor, did a lot of and does a lot of different things. I like that about him. Oh yeah, I mean, I like Matt Dillon, and I think it's a good performance because he gets you to understand those layers of the character. Um, and this was one of his earliest roles. I think this is like his third movie maybe. So he's still just starting out. And, uh, you know, I noticed he doesn't even get billed in the opening credits. Armand Asante gets to be billed, but he doesn't. So, you know, he was not a big deal at the time. Certainly. That's a bummer. Um, Josh, tell us about the, uh, or Dave, how the music plays into this whole thing. Well, it's hard to say because, you know, some of those songs may not be what they originally used, but the score is, is fine. It's, it seems very typical. Uh, late 70s early 80s kind of stuff what about yeah, typical what about gary callahan armand asante singing his love ballad with his guitar about a cherry to these girls who are trying yeah. to lose their virginities i don't know what that song is if that was like a, a well-known song that he's playing there or whatever i did like in that scene it was funny that uh chubby is uh is sitting singing there, the words singing the words along with some like fake little microphone and it's very it's very uh, subdued and subtle the way that they show that with her. So I feel like there's a lot of little details with that. And like all the, the, the actresses playing those supporting roles, 
even in other, you know, scenes where they're just in the background, they're always reacting in very real seeming ways, um, which I, which I really enjoyed. And again, just the fact that you can really get the camaraderie of all of these girls and not just of the two main characters. I really like Cynthia Nixon. I thought she was uh, really fun. She was as Sunshine, the hippie girl. And this was her first role, uh, the first yeah. movie she was in. Yeah. And and uh, when looking her up, I, you know, I forgot she was in Amadeus, which we covered here. So We did. Yeah. She had a long career. I mean, starting as a child actor. Um, and I think, you know, people know her more, obviously, for her adult roles. But for, uh, for running for mayor of New York City. That's hey, Josh. So the they had offered the Christy McNichol part to Brooke Shields and Jodie Foster. And both would have been good. You know, this yeah. is just uh, at this time, you know, there was the you know, as I told you, I've read that book, like the ultimate history of the teen movie. And like this is like like the 80s. That's that's the golden age, right? Of teen right. movies. And sure. And there's so much talent. Uh, so many talented young actors who were just coming up then. So one movie I was thinking about while watching this was Blockers, because I thought Blockers really handled a similar subject matter in a funnier way, but also like in a really effective way. Yeah, I don't really like that movie, but I do agree that the sort of uh, teen girl bonding in that film is is done well. Uh, all the adult antics in that movie I find really annoying. Another movie I think we could agree that this uh, recalls is one that we both like a lot, Banana Split from a couple years ago, um, which is about two teen girls who should be rivals and then become friends. So I think there's definitely a lot of influence, and I'm sure there's more than just those two um, that have been influenced by this film, even if it was kind of not available to watch for a little while. Well, Josh, do you want to rate this thing? Yeah, should we rate it out of five broken condom machines or uh, five sure. food fights? Yeah, sure. Broken one. condom machines, which is a, that's a fun scene where Chubby has to go in and get condoms and, and yeah, and then they they steal the whole machine out of the gas station bathroom and then they they break it open like it's a pinata, get all these condoms out of it. I give it three, Josh. As all I right. said, I don't love it, I don't hate it, but it was good, and uh, that's cool with me. Three, three, right there for me. Three broken condom machines. I, I'll take it. I'm glad that you could, you know, find some enjoyment in it. I'm giving it four. Like I said, I, I feel like I've enjoyed and appreciated this movie more each time, and it's super underrated. And if more people watch it, you can rent it now on all the various places. Please check it out. So, Dave. I'm going three and a half right, right in the middle of you guys. Yeah, it's a fun movie. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dave. I'm glad you found it that way. Yes. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Little Darlings. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1980, we have been talking about my pick, the summer camp comedy, Little Darlings. Um, and we've, we've been mentioning throughout here, you know, part of the legacy of this film is that it kind of disappeared for a while because of the music rights. It was hard to get. You would have to find it on VHS or like I did on like a, you know, bootleg upload, but it's been more available recently. So I feel like more audiences are discovering it now and probably will continue to. And certainly that summer camp genre, Jason, as you're saying, is such a big deal that lots of people will be looking, I think, for those kinds of movies. I want to watch the TV version of this movie, which sounds insane to me because it has no references to sex, sexual dialogue, or any of the scenes that involve. So is it like a two minute, is it just a commercial or what? what <laughs> how do you make this movie? Yeah. I mean, this is a, an edit for television where they remove the sexual references. So, um, well, I mean, it's just, this is all we have really going about. This is like what Wikipedia says that. They make it as if it's a competition to make the guys fall in love with them. So I feel like you could probably get a good amount of even the interaction between them and the guys where it's just like them trying to get attention and whatever. But yeah, it must be very short. Maybe you throw commercials in it and it airs in a one hour time slot or something. I don't know. <laughs> kind of crazy. Have you ever seen Ronald F. Maxwell's film Kid Co. Uh, from 1984, where a bunch of kid entrepreneurs buy uh, a land that involves a cow and horse manure and they sell the manure as fertilizer, Kidco? No, I have not. And uh, Ronald F. Maxwell, not exactly a distinguished career following this. <laughs> that, that sounds kind of amazing. Um, I mean, he also directed The Parent Trap 2, the uh, sequel to the Haley Mills movie, which I'm pretty sure I have seen because that's the one where now Haley Mills' characters are adults and they get parent trapped. 
I think. And then there was like a whole, there was like a whole series of those. I weirdly, for some reason, as a kid, watched all of the made-for-TV Parent Trap sequels, having never seen the original Parent Trap, and thus only knew the Haley Mills character as an adult version. Um, so he directed that, and and even and as I mentioned, he did team up immediately after this with Christy McNichol again on the Lights Went Out in Georgia. The weirdest thing is that much later in his career, he became this director of Civil War movies. Uh, Gettysburg, Gods and Generals, Copperhead. Uh, the first two of those, which were fairly uh, well known, yeah. I think. But that was that was the end of his career. He directed these three big Civil War epics, and his last credit was in 2013. So he's, I guess, basically just retired now. Yeah, I think he was also teaching, but you know, you would think he would get involved with like Yellowstone or 1883, do something like. That. Yeah, that would fit there, but uh, you know, maybe he's he's had his career and he's happy, you know, just uh, maybe just teaching or or uh, you know being retired. So, Jason, the thing I thought you might be mentioning when you said the TV version of this, which is a TV pilot from 1982 that was made uh, based on this film uh, to try to turn this into a TV series that did not go anywhere. It's just a pilot. I was trying to see if it was available to watch like, you know, on YouTube or something like we did with the nine to five uh, TV series, for example, but I could not find it. And it was written by Kimmy Peck and Daylene Young, the writers of the film, uh, directed by Joel Zwick was the director Mm. of that pilot, uh, starring Pamela Adlon as Angel and Tammy Lauren as Ferris. So mm. it sounds like an interesting, I'm not sure how they made that. Uh, I assume they don't have the virginity competition, but, uh, you know, just a, just a. I'm a tough girl from the streets. Right. Exactly. I'm a rich girl, but you don't know who I am. So Yeah, um, I'm sure it's something like that. But I would have loved to see young Pamela Adlon as, uh, as Angel. I think that would have been great. Well, look, yeah. if we're going to talk about TV, you know, Josh, I think both of us remember Tatum O'Neill from her work on uh, Rescue Me. Not too long ago, right? She uh, yes. had a nice turn there as uh, Tommy Gavin's sister. And of course, Christy McNichol, Empty Nest. You know. Yes. Yeah. That Dreyfus. Was... <laughs> Dreyfus. I'm a doctor. You're running all over the place, Dreyfus. Oh, the, there's a Richard Mulligan. Is that yeah, who, who was expecting a Richard Mulligan impression today? No one, obviously. No. But... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Christy McNichol, as we said, her her attempt to become a movie star didn't really quite pan out. And so she had returned to TV and did Empty Nest for many, many years and then eventually uh, retired from acting. She she's one of these people. It sounded like her experience as a child actor, really both her and Tatum O'Neill, you know, had trouble dealing with this huge amount of fame as children. Um, And so Christy McNichol Uh, Eventually, she retired from acting in 2001. Um, She also, you know, she came out as lesbian around that time or maybe just before that. And, you know, that was something that she, I think, was struggling with having to not reveal to people when she was younger. So um, seems like her life is probably better now that she's, uh, you know, away from the spotlight. I I think one of the reasons she left acting was because she was uh, she's bipolar and like she had to focus on her mental health. And she says she's in a much better place. Tatum O'Neill had it rough, man. You know, like we all know the stories about Ryan O'Neill. What a, you know, I mean, there was literally there was Ryan and Tatum, the O'Neills on the uh, Oprah network where they were trying to like mend the relationship between father and daughter. And that must have been tough to be the daughter of a star who was not only a huge star, but also a, a huge ego maniac and everything like that. So she, you know, she, she had drug problems and she, you know, not long after this movie kind of more or less disappeared from the spotlight, had very few credits and later in the eighties and in the nineties, and then kind of came back with stuff like rescue me, like you were saying back in the two thousands. Yeah. As a sports fan, I knew she was John McEnroe's ex-wife, but uh, it was fun to read about how she was Michael Jackson's girlfriend back in the day. Yeah. All Mm. sorts of weird stuff going on in her life. She's written two memoirs. I'm sure there's all sorts of crazy celebrity gossip and stories in there. And uh, she seems to have settled into this kind of small scale career working in some, you know, probably better for her. Yeah. And and B movies. I mean, some questionable credits. She was in the third uh, God's Not Dead movie. And um in some horror, some B horror movie recently, which I don't know anything about, but I just love that the title of it was Rock Paper Dead. So yes, um, you can't good. go wrong with that title. 
right Christy there. McNichol uh, smoked for 10 years because she had to smoke in this movie. So she got hooked on it. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah, that is something in this movie, too. The teenagers are smoking and drinking and there's very little adult supervision going yeah. on at this camp, it seems yeah. like. And she had auditioned for Amanda Wurlitzer in The Bad News Bears, which who was played by Tatum O'Neill. Tatum O'Neill, yeah. Well, I mean, they were clearly at sort of on the same level as teen girl stars at the time that this movie came out. Yeah. So as a teen star, we've already mentioned Matt Dillon, Outsiders, Rumblefish, Flamingo Kid, and then he kind of moved into the adult roles in the late 80s with Drugstore Cowboy and Singles. And he's just had a lot of big, you know, to die for, in and out, something about Mary. Like, there's a lot of big movies. Josh loves Crash. I like Wild Things, you know. <laughs> oh, I love Wild Things. I was, yeah. I'm a huge fan of Wild Things. I was going to say, if we get to 98 or whatever, that'll probably end up being my pick. Yeah, nice. that's a fun movie. Um, so he's got three projects, I think, now coming up. American Dreamer with uh, Peter Dinklage, which is an interesting movie based on an NPR story about, like, someone who's bequeathed a house and doesn't realize, like, all the problems that'll come with it. Asteroid City, the new Wes Anderson one we've talked about before. And then uh, High Desert, which is going to be a limited series about like, you know, someone's uh, relative gets murdered and they decide to become a private eye. So I'm just happy he's doing a lot. He did win the lead for um, Independent Spirit Award for Drugstore Cowboy. And Josh, you personally voted him as the best supporting actor in the Las Vegas Film Critics Society Awards for Crash. Oof, I might have been in the Film Critics Society at that time, and I would have strongly objected to that um, award. But but generally, I agree with you. I think Matt Dillon is really talented, and he's also someone who's willing to be adventurous with his choices and work with people like Lars von Trier, uh, in addition to those more mainstream roles that he does. So uh, absolutely very talented and underrated actor. Um, you know, we talked about Armand Asante and you look at Armand Asante's credits for the last 20 years and it's like literally no movie that you would ever have heard of, but just a ton of them. I love him in Fatal Instinct. I'll tell you that much. Oh yeah. my God. Is that the parody of Basic Instinct? <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Oh, he does. Boy. He does have an Emmy for Gotti. You know, he's in Private Benjamin, Judge Shred. So those are, yeah. And I, I think he got an Oscar nod for Q&A. So. Okay. Yeah. See, I haven't seen any of that stuff. And I mean, hopefully his Gotti, that's like a mini series. I think if it's better than the John Travolta one recently. That was, that was <laughs> a big HBO mini series. And, he, and then he played Gotti and then he played uh, Odysseus uh, in the Odyssey. So. Sure. He's versatile. He can do both of those things. Yeah. Um, you know, Cynthia Nixon of, of all these people might've gone on to be one of the biggest stars here, of course, with Sex in the City and the recent revival of it, and Jason's fandom for her campaign for mayor of New York City. So <laughs> Cynthia Nixon just, I mean, it just felt to me like that Cynthia Nixon loves to hear the name Cynthia Nixon. for a while, Maybe, so. maybe so. She is, she is very good in this movie and very like fresh-faced and innocent, you know, in her, in her first role. Yeah, um, um, I wanted to mention, she isn't she the white, we talk, when we talked about um, Altman, we talked about Tanner 88. I think she's the wife in Tanner 88. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen Tanner 88. Um, she's on The Gilded Age right now on HBO, which uh, is is a fun show and, um, you know, maybe better to watch than the revival of Sex and the City. I haven't watched it. Have you? Either uh, one. Either one. I've watched I, I The Gilded Age. Yeah, I like The Gilded Age. So, Dave, did you watch And Just Like That? I did, yeah. We watched that, and uh, it, it's it's got its moments. Okay. You're, you're terrible, right. Dave. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Um, Krista, Krista Erickson, who is really like the third most, uh, you know, important female character in this film playing Cinder, the, the mean girl, she worked in the eighties and nineties as a young actor in you know, some TV roles and stuff, and then quit acting to become a journalist and a documentary filmmaker, uh, seemed to have kind of an interesting career there is, you know, international journalism and stuff like that. And, you know, not what you would expect from Cinder. She's good as the heavy in this one. She is. She is definitely you. You you hate her, but you also understand her own like insecurities and why she would be uh, making this happen. Any any word on Chubby? I you know what? I didn't look up Chubby. I don't remember who that actress was, but Abby Bluestone. She, there you go. Hopefully poor Abby Bluestone was not traumatized by being credited as Chubby in this film and you know went on to a, a happy and productive life. So 
Uh, but you know who did not go on to a happy and productive life? Uh, <laughs> what a segue. I, I know. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Amazing. Thank you. Um, so, you know, I looked up the the uh, the, the writers and uh, Daylene Young was a, a working writer. I think what, what happened with this film is I think it was a Kimmy Peck was the original screenwriter and then Daylene Young came in and, and rewrote. And she was obviously a working writer on a lot of projects. She has a lot, a lot, a lot of like TV movie credits through, I think, 2002. Um, but Kimmy Peck, the only other like IMDb credit she has is the failed, the TV pilot version of Little Darling. So I thought, oh, what is she up to? Maybe she's doing some cool stuff. I'll Google Kimmy Peck. That was a mistake. So um, <laughs> Kimmy, Kimmy Peck, if you Google her, virtually every article about her is how she is a notorious animal hoarder and had been arrested for animal cruelty. And there's like websites about like, you know, watch out for her and she's evading the authorities and all of this just really awful stuff. It sounds like she's had this very tragic life. And uh, after after this, she was unable to get, you know, any other projects going. She went and worked as a writer and director of of porn films and then became an animal hoarder. So really just a terrible thing for me to have learned about. Do you have a favorite of her porn films? I yeah, I didn't even write down the titles, but um, I'm sure they're not as good as Little Darlings. I was making like, but of course, uh, everything you said is just horrifying. Like, not the porn Terrible. stuff. I don't care. Do whatever you want, but like the animal abuse, not 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 okay. We here at Awesome Movie Year are against animal abuse. Yes, yes, and just it sounded like she just had a lot of mental issues. She was you know, drifting through different marriages and had children that she had given up for adoption. And it just, everything that I read about her made her life sound uh, sadder. So mm. I will try to forget that I learned that and just enjoy her lovely writing in this film. So, and that's a great place to end this episode. Let's do that on <laughs> such a happy note. That is little darlings. And that is this episode of awesome movie year. Check us out on social media. Yes, you can check us out on social media. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or J Harris Comedy on all of the socials. My website, goforjason.com, is in a summer camp in the 80s somewhere. <laughs> uh, we're at awesomemovieyear.com. If you like an RSS feed, we got one for you. Awesome Movie Year on Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. Uh, you can go to joshbellhateseverything.com and find uh, something that I wrote about the first time I saw this film. So uh, that's exciting. And other random stuff there. Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. So, Jason, what do we have in our next episode? Josh, we've covered a lot of major foreign filmmakers, but we have yet to get to Francois Truffaut. Well, that all changes with our next episode, The Last Metro. So tune in next time for The Last Metro, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas. Sorry, did you have something else you were trying to say there, Jason? I was just going to make an off-color comment about Dave. So. <laughs> just just <laughs> more, more insults, that's all. <laughs>